When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And we're back in the College Football Survivor Show. Thanks to you guys for joining us here. Holidays here. Hope you guys are getting ready for a great celebration with friends and family. This is a celebration. It's a college football playoff. We do a show year-round, and we get to the actual playoff games. This show is Ohio State-Georgia. For Apple Podcast subscribers, we did the other show this week, was TCU Michigan. And you can subscribe to Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month. You get four bonus shows. So that's 75 cents an episode. And if you subscribe there, you get things like the show we did with uh, a TCU beat writer and a Michigan beat writer uh, earlier this week to do that semifinal. Here, we're going to do Ohio State Georgia. We're going to start off with Brandon Adams of Dog Nation Daily. Great, great podcast toast talking about Georgia five times a week. He came on to talk about where Georgia is the number one seed defending national champs, where Georgia is from an intangible standpoint, health, and then what they do best in this matchup with Ohio State on both sides of the ball, where their concerns might be on both sides of the ball. And I'm fascinated by the standard that Georgia has set for itself, what it did a year ago and and trying to maintain that standard. I think it's one of the most fascinating things in college football. Yeah, you get because the top tier is pretty small. So Bama often in this era, Bama's Bama's standard is Bama and maybe everyone else is chasing Bama. But what Georgia established last year, Georgia's standard is Georgia. And you don't have to be as good as last year's team to win a national title, but you know what that looks like. So I think like chasing that, it's hard, man. It's why I did think I thought Georgia would slip up in the regular season this year, just because I think it's that difficult to come back and do that. But Brandon had some good points about that. And here Georgia is as the one seed, the favorite to win the national title. So really good look from Brandon at the number one team. Then we got a special extra guest spot with Mike Rodak of AL.com, an Alabama beat writer. And the reason I wanted Mike on was to talk about the last time Georgia lost. What did Bama do last year in the SEC title game? that Ohio State could learn from, that anybody could learn from. When you say, Georgia's good, what do we do? But then, because Mike is smart and good, just like Brandon is, we wound up going down a different path and talking about the state of Alabama football because guess what? Bama matters. Bama always matters. Playoff show in the playoff era, Alabama matters. What's the state of the Alabama program? The idea that Will Anderson and Bryce Young are both playing in the Sugar Bowl and not opting out. Does that tell you anything? The battle between Alabama and Georgia for SEC supremacy and just where Bama is right now. Where Nick Saban is right now, where they are against themselves, but now they might, I don't know if they're chasing Georgia yet, but Georgia's at least neck and neck, right? And also Georgia's in the playoff and Bama isn't. So Bama still matters and unexpected. It wasn't really what I planned, but I told Mike it's his problem because he was too smart. Good Bama conversation there. And then we'll wrap up with a guy who's not quite as good and it's me. I've covered Ohio State since 2005. I'm going to give you the Ohio State breakdown, right? Same kind of thing. I've covered Ohio State in the... 2006 national title game, the 2007 national title game, the 2014 playoff run, the 2016 semifinal loss, the 2019 semifinal loss, 2020 Ohio State playoff run, and here we are again. So I, you know, I'm at least old. I know what 
good Ohio State teams look like, the best Ohio State teams look like. And I look, I know what Ohio State teams that aren't quite good enough, like in 16, they weren't quite good enough. They should not have been in the playoff and they got wiped by Clemson 31 nothing. They didn't, they weren't good enough to be there, but they somehow made it. Where's this Ohio State team right now? So we'll talk about that. So I like this show because we have smart people on and it matters. We're talking Georgia, talking Ohio State and a little bit of Bama, but we'll kick it off with Brandon Adams of Dog Nation Daily here on the College Football Survivor Show. All right, Brandon Adams back on the College Football Survivor Show. Always lucky to have him. The guy you want to hear from when it comes to the Georgia Bulldogs. He's the host of Dog Nation Daily. You can also check out dognation.com. Brandon's going to be hosting a bunch of parties in Atlanta uh, the week of the Peach Bowl. Brandon, this Georgia team, you've been watching these last two years. Intangibles, health, Will we be able to see the best version of Georgia in this game against Ohio State, or is there anything that might be holding them back from being the best they can be? Well, there are a couple of health concerns, I think, to be aware of. And first of all, it's great to be back with you again. But, you know, Georgia in the SEC championship had an injury to its right tackle and Warren McClendon, one of its top wide receivers in Lad McConkey. And it's not obvious yet how healthy they're going to be for uh, then the college football playoff game coming up against Ohio State. You know, Kirby likes to keep these things pretty close to the vest. And, my guess is he'll continue to do that leading up this game. Now, it's also maybe not the kinds of injuries that necessarily completely change the game, although I guess if you're missing your right tackle, that's a pretty big deal. So I would say that Georgia's more healthy than not. You've got A.D. Mitchell, for instance, who's probably the uh, top receiver on the team, finally got him back prior to the SEC championship. That's one of those injuries that had been lingering for a long time. And then you, know, you start talking about something else now. You're kind of dealing with uh, – the McClendon thing, the McConkey thing, there's a little bit of an injury to a guy like, say, Marvin Jones Jr., who's one of this team's most impressive freshmen, certainly most talented young freshman, uh, future edge rushing star potentially. He's a little banged up right now. So, you know, Georgia for the most part is, you know, healthy, but you're obviously watching the McConkey thing, the McClendon thing pretty closely. You mentioned the intangible part of this. That's maybe been the most interesting thing this season that – in a lot of ways, Georgia looks a good bit different than it looked a year ago. Certainly doesn't have five first-round picks on defense anymore. And, you know, the overall makeup of the team sort of feels a little bit different. But whatever kind of intangible connection this team seemed to have with itself last year, it kind of has that again. That's the one thing that does feel like is carried over is, is that, you know, whatever, you know, call it professionalism, whatever you want to call it, whatever kind of thing that Georgia seemed to have, there's a certain kind of fabric of that that has carried over here in 2022, despite the fact that a lot of the faces and names that are leading this team are a good bit different than the ones from last season. I mean, it's the kind of thing that every coach in the world says that trying to stay on top is harder than getting on top. Defending's not as fun as chasing. Before the season, I did not pick Georgia to make the playoff because I just thought somebody would get them in the regular season. I didn't know who somebody not as good as them, somebody jumps up and gets them, and then they get to the SEC title game against Bama, and that's their second loss, and they just don't quite make it, right? That's the the story of the Georgia season I thought we would get. Instead, early on, my gosh, it's like, are they better than last year? Then they have a couple bumps, but they survive. They certainly could have lost the Missouri game, and Stetson Bennett and that offense makes plays when they need to. And then it turns out the other side of the SEC, it's like, what? No one's going to beat Georgia over there. Did you think... You know, did you think, hey, man, I, before the season, I, I really think a repeat is right there on the table for these guys. Or when they lose as much talent as they did defensively and just the nature of defending, did you think it'd be tough? Well, I certainly thought it would be tough. We, look, I think one of the things you've seen is in the history of the college football playoff, 
teams that win the national championship for the most part are back in the playoff discussion again the following year. I guess LSU from 2019 and 2020 is one of the examples when that wasn't true. But for the most part, national champions have been, I think, at least playoff contenders the following year. So I think from that standpoint, there was a case to be made that Georgia was undervalued to begin the season just because – you know, I didn't see an obvious reason in which they should be well off the pace of what previous playoff champions have been. Because think about it, an LSU team from 19 to 20, you're losing a quarterback, whereas Georgia brought back its quarterback. And frankly, Georgia wasn't as quarterback dependent as a team like LSU would have been back in 2019. So I thought that Georgia may have been a little undervalued to begin the season because of what you would compare to them with previous playoff champs. But obviously, they've also been aided this year, some about what you said before, which is that Alabama is actually of the teams that were kind of perennially in that playoff discussion or at the at the playoff discussion begin the year. It's actually Alabama that seems like a kind of a shell of its former self because they lost twice in the regular season. And you know, despite the fact they had on paper the best player on offense, Bryce Young, best player on defense, Will Anderson, a lot of the transfer players they brought in never seemed to really mesh all that well. So at the beginning of the year, you can always look at that sort of top four, top five, kind of upper half of the top ten and say at the end of this season, one of those teams won't be here. I think a lot of folks commonly assume that would be George, but it's actually Alabama that ended up kind of falling prey to that. And that is sort of part of the story here is that in the SEC, Tennessee ended up being better than some would have assumed. Alabama ended up being a little bit worse. And Georgia's just sort of steady as it went throughout the year, kind of emerged as 13-0 and to uh, get to the point we are right now. When you think about this Georgia offense, the connection is to me – that you can see between Todd Monken as a play caller and Stetson Bennett executing that plan. It just feels like every Georgia play leads into the next play. Here's a swing pass. All right, we're going to throw to the tight end. Now we're going to run up the middle. Maybe we'll take a shot. It's, I've been calling it like ruthlessly efficient that they just, and then they'll take their shots. We know that. And AD Mitchell is going to contribute to that, right? If a healthy version of him makes that, that downfield pass game, even more uh, of a threat, but how have you viewed this the last two years of of this Monken offense and and Bennett running it? What is that? What's best? That t- I don't know. What do you think is the best thing about this Georgia offense? Well, I think it's hard to overstate how impactful Monken has been as a play caller. If you want to go back to the last year prior to him being here in 2019, I mean, at that point in time, Doug, Georgia's only scored about 21 points per game in SEC play. They beat up on some non-conference foes that year and kind of made the overall average look a little bit better. But against SEC competition, the most important games you play during a regular season, Georgia was barely scoring really any points at all. And look in 2020 when Georgia was playing nothing but SEC opponents or Cincinnati in the bowl game, their scoring year over year went up. And then in 2021, the national championship year, after that kind of sort of struggling offensive performance against Clemson to begin the season, Georgia played a much higher level of offense on a per-game basis in 2021. And then Todd Munkin comes back in 2022 and kind of picks up, you know, kind of right where they left off. He's the nation's highest paid assistant coach. And I think if you look at the results for him offensively, it sort of speaks to that. And obviously Stetson Bennett's been a huge part of that. And maybe for a lot of the people who are watching us now, they've learned a lot about Stetson because of the fact that he's been a Heisman finalist, and I think deservedly so. But I would also say that Georgia is just less quarterback dependent Mm. than the teams in this year's playoff and, frankly, most playoff teams in most years. That's not meant to be a knock on Bennett, or it's certainly not meant to be a suggestion that Georgia doesn't need to play well at the quarterback spot to win. But this is not a scenario as goes Stetson Bennett, so goes the Georgia offense. If that's the case, then Georgia's probably in trouble. That means they've given up some early points, and now they're trying to fight back from a deficit as they were in last year's SEC championship. 
or they haven't quite got the running game going the way they're supposed to. I mean, obviously Georgia needs a big game from its quarterback. Every team in the playoff kind of does. But if the Georgia offense led by Todd Munkin is really working the way that it's supposed to, then it's a lot of component pieces working together. It's a lot of offensive line. It's some running game. It's getting the the tight ends involved, probably as deep a crop of those as exist anywhere uh, in the country right now. That Georgia's just less about the one player than certainly TCU is with Dugan or or maybe uh, Ohio State is with Stroud. Georgia's story is just a little bit different. When you think about this matchup with this Ohio State defense, obviously the Ohio State defense much better than a year ago. New defensive coordinator and Jim Knowles making a bunch of money, just like Todd Monk is making. This is a lot of money, man. This is a lot of coordinator money head-to-head. Jim Knowles and Todd Monken going to be earning it in this game. What's maybe a concern for this Georgia offense in that matchup? You mentioned the right tackle injury. You know, that offensive line has been one of the best in the country all year. You know, I do wonder, I don't know if Ohio State can get Georgia into a shootout. As you're kind of saying, maybe that's not the best scenario for Georgia if you wind up there. But is is there something that you'd say, mm, I, you know, Georgia really needs to make sure they're straight on this when it comes to facing this Ohio State defense? Well, I think one of the things you keep in mind here is, is for a lot of people who are kind of like maybe just going back through the scores and they look what the best of Georgia was this year, you'll see the Oregon game in which they won 49-3 to at the beginning of the season. Ironically, the same stadium they're going to play at uh, on uh, New Year's Eve. and I would say that the version of Georgia you saw there is not the Georgia that's required to win a national championship. That was a lot of throwing the ball that day. Uh, Georgia did not run the ball very much. I think some of that was probably opponent dependent, just based on what Georgia maybe thought it could do, maybe knew it could do against Oregon. And so, therefore, that was a day in which the running game wasn't a huge factor. And I don't think you can have the same kind of thing here against Ohio State. You've got to be able to demonstrate – some success on the ground. It's not necessarily run first and then throw off of that, but certainly showing an ability to mix in the run with what you're doing through the air. I think that's the kind of thing that kind of neutralized the Ohio State offense a bit, kind of keeps that at bay, and that's one of the things that you have to be able to do. Here's the other thing, too, and this is not necessarily an answer to your question, but it's what your question kind of leads me to think of, is that in a lot of ways, Ohio State, from a storyline standpoint, is exactly where Georgia was going into last year's college football playoff, where it was Georgia that had lost its most recent game. And I think there were even a lot of Georgia fans that kind of doubted Georgia's ability to bounce back since they looked so bad against Alabama. Well, it's Ohio State that's actually now lost its most recent game. And that also came against the team that their fans probably hate to lose to more than any other. That's kind of what Alabama sort of become for Georgia. And um, certainly Ohio State fans feel that way about Michigan. And so there's this thought of, well, right now, Ohio State is maybe worse than some people imagine because they just lost their most recent game. You see a lot of the betting trends right now heavily favoring Georgia here. And so if you're a Georgia fan, I think the thing that you're a little bit concerned is is that much the same way there was too much recency bias doubting Georgia before last year's game against Michigan, is there also too much recency bias doubting Ohio State coming into this game against Georgia? Because we did not see, especially in the fourth quarter, the Buckeyes' defense looked very good against Michigan. Is that really what they are in games that matter? Or is that just one data point and an Ohio State team that, that did admittedly play badly? That's why they didn't get a chance to play for the Big Ten title. But they're kind of due for a bounce back because no team of this talent, no team of this quality is going to have you know that poor performance two games in a row. That's one of the things I think you have to be a little bit wary of as a Georgia fan is that Ohio State is not in a dissimilar spot to where Georgia was last year where – there's a little bit of doubt kind of baked into the cake right now because we saw the Buckeyes lose their last game and defense was a big reason why they lost. That leads me to a thing that I 
am really curious about, and it's the way that Ryan Day is viewed right now. It's his fourth season at Ohio State. He's made a national championship game. He's made the playoff three of four seasons here, but they just lost to Michigan twice, two lost season a year ago. It's like, well, I mean, they're good. They're good. But can they really, is he the head coach to really get you over the top? And Kirby Smart, man, Kirby Smart, Turned everything from a recruiting standpoint at Georgia, right? I mean, great defensive mind, makes the playoff, makes a national championship game. But I think even coming into the playoff a year ago, coming off that lost Alabama, were there doubts? Like, all right, Kirby's good. Of course he's good, and he's been great for Georgia. But is he really going to get you over the top, especially against Nick Saban if if they play again, right? I'm very curious about it. It's not fair. You build a program – Top to bottom, recruiting, staff, player motivation, scheme, all those things. And Ryan Day and Kirby Smart are both very good at it. But how much did people's view of Kirby Smart change when they won the national championship? And were there doubts about him before last before the playoff last year? Well, one quick point on the basis kind of what you asked the question around is, I think this is probably the first game, that Kirby, first time Kirby's played a big game in which the coach on the other side has obviously more questions to answer than Kirby does. And obviously the national championship win is one of the things that changes that. So I don't believe that Georgia fans ever really soured on Kirby or ever really openly doubted Kirby all that much. But when your high-profile losses were all coming against the same team, Alabama, there was this thought that the pupil can't take down the teacher. There was this thought that you know Nick Saban may have taught Kirby everything he knows, but not everything that Saban knows, right? There's this idea that Saban was still the master and Kirby was still the guy trying to learn from him or trying to emulate him or whatever, that there was some sort of inferiority relationship between Kirby and Saban. And when you won that game in January, when Georgia did that, that kind of changed that a little bit. The other thing that kind of got, you know, was a knock against Kirby for a while was some of those early years, the performance really closely mirrored what Mark Richt had done. You know, the record was almost the same through three years, four years, whatever. There were a lot of comparisons between Kirby Smart and the early years of Mark Richt it seemed really, really similar. And I think for a lot of Georgia fans that were more plugged in, they would have said, yeah, but the recruiting results are way different. The overall roster strength is way, you know, way different. There were some underlying fundamentals that probably suggested that Kirby was eventually going to have a greater level of success than Rick had had. But for Kirby, who was hired to be better than Rick, there were a lot of people who were kind of pointing out for a good while that, well, actually, up until a certain point, Kirby really hadn't exceeded the performance that Mark Rick had provided. So those were the two knocks that existed on Kirby you know, what he was doing in comparison to those early years of Mark Rick and what he was able to do against his former mentor, uh, Nick Saban. But obviously all of that completely changed forever, you know, when you won that game in January of this past year. And obviously that's what Ryan Day is trying to do now, kind of trying to change that narrative. And I frankly don't think the people that I talk to every day, Georgia fans, I don't think they probably realize how substantial this conversation is around Day because they see Ohio State as, you know, some sort of kind of this national presence and, you know, obviously has gotten a lot of attention for a long time. I don't think they realize that there's some restlessness, I would assume, you would tell me probably better, but there's some restlessness within kind of what you think of as Buckeye Nation about the fact they have lost to Michigan two years in a row and they are looking to break through in a national stage in a way they probably haven't since 2014. The four years that Ryan Day's been the head coach at Ohio State, the only team in the country with a better record than Ohio State is Georgia. And uh, after they lost to Michigan, there were some people who were like, let's fire this guy. So I think that would be correctly <laughs> characterized. Is that restlessness if you want to fire the coach who's lost five games in his whole? So, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, the, the thing to me, I don't think Ohio State, I mean, how can you say, oh, you better go beat the defending national champs who are undefeated? Or you, I don't think you can put that on Ohio State. They have to show up and play well. 
I think they had to compete with Georgia or we're going to be down the path of more questions, Ohio State at the highest level. Listen, man, Georgia's a monster, but you got to you can't get blown off the field. Ryan Day got this job at Ohio State because Ohio State went to the playoff in 2016 and lost to Clemson 31 to nothing. And Ohio State was like, well, we got to change something. And they wiped out the offensive coordinators and brought in Ryan Day. So I don't that doesn't mean they're going to wipe people out, but making the playoff is great. You got to compete. Right. Georgia's the new standard. You have to at least hang. Georgia's the new standard. Georgia is the standard. And now now that's who you have to measure yourself against. I don't think you have to beat the standard, but you have to hang with the standard. Right, Brandon? Well, I think that there's also a small handful of teams where there's only two emotions. There's either the ultimate elation of winning it all or there's the ultimate misery of coming even if it's just short of that, you know, it's either elation or misery. And that's the only two feelings that you're capable of feeling. Obviously, Georgia's in that category. Uh, I think Ohio State is in that category. I think Alabama's kind of been in that category, too. And frankly, even other really stellar programs, I don't quite think they kind of rise that same level of fatalism in terms of you either do exactly what you set out to do or you failed miserably because you fell just a little bit short. And so it's one of the things that makes a game like Ohio State feel so big. You know, the Georgia-Ohio State game feels so big is that, hey, these are two programs that have been adjacent to each other for a long time. And the regular rankings, the recruiting rankings, and yet they haven't been on the same field together since the end of the 1992 season. And there aren't very many programs that kind of define success and failure the same way. And I think that right now, Georgia and Ohio State are, you know, two of those teams. So I think even if you're not a Buckeye fan or a dog fan, if you're not that, just the stakes of the game feel really big. And I think that's one of the things that that makes it uh, feel really fun is – that this is the first of what could be many of these matchups in the uh, future. And obviously both sides know how, how large the magnitude is. Now they had a series on the schedule. Remember that they were supposed to play in 20 and 21 and they canceled it. As I'm looking here, they canceled it in 2012 because the big 10 was going to play a series of games with the PAC 12. Oh my God. All the stuff that's been planned and canceled and relationships and affiliations. But I remember when that Georgia Ohio state series got scheduled, Brandon, cause I was like, let's go. This is going to be awesome. They also have some very, very distant um, non-conference games that are supposed to take place against each other like a long time from now. But a lot of that stuff is very much, you know, difficult because Georgia actually had a, a non-conference game against Oklahoma that it's supposed to play in 2023. And that's now been canceled because Oklahoma's about to join the SEC. So with the SEC likely to expand to a nine-game conference schedule, a lot of the future non-conference series that Georgia has, you're left to wonder how many of those it will be able to play. So Sometime in the future, Georgia is supposed to be going to Columbus. Columbus is supposed to be – Ohio State supposed to be coming down to Georgia. But I, I think a lot of that is still be determined because you've already seen at least one of these high-profile non-conference uh, series for Georgia have to be canceled because of the change that's on its way to the SEC. And in the 12-team playoff, you're going to start – all the best teams are going to start playing each other more often anyway because you're going to have to win three or four games in the playoff to win a national title. So, you know, it's been too long. We had, it's only the second time ever, as you mentioned. Too long for Ohio State, Georgia, but I don't I don't think this is the last time that these schools are going to see each other in the foreseeable future. I think you guys are getting this. You've got to listen to Dog Nation Daily, right? You've got to listen to this Georgia podcast to build up to this semifinal on December 31st. Nobody does it better than Brandon. Defensively, Brandon, this is my out this is my shorthand, which is why we have experts on. Front seven for Georgia, not quite as good as last year. Secondary better? Is that a correct shorthand or no? I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Here's the way that I would probably say it is that 
in the one game in which Georgia had to play well defensively this year, they sort of looked like the team in 2021. And at other points in time this year, they either didn't really need to be that version of themselves or you might say well, they were incapable of being that. You know, Georgia had to be what it was in 2021, the game against Tennessee. It has a high-powered offense. Tennessee was riding high coming into Athens. as the first Saturday in November. In that day, Georgia really got after Hendon Hooker because that was the thing that made the 2021 defense for Georgia so special was is they just got after quarterbacks in a way they had not previously done. So they had 49 sacks last year. And, you know, in like, say, 2019, some of these years, which Georgia had really been very good defensively, if you want to measure by how few points they gave up, how few yards they allowed, Georgia was as good defensively as anybody. But even in some of those previous years when they were otherwise statistically very excellent, they weren't getting after quarterbacks the way that I think great teams really have to. Last season, they did. This year, they haven't really done that. There's maybe a thousand reasons why that's the case. Kirby Smart will talk about quarterbacks getting rid of the ball quicker or you know, whatever the reason is. They just haven't done that. But the Tennessee game, they did. So here's what you're left to try to wonder about this upcoming season, or I should say this upcoming game against Ohio State. Is this an example of a Georgia defense that can just flip that switch on again? It's playing an offense where you have to respect it, so therefore you have to have a 2021-level performance, and so you just do it the way that you did against Tennessee when you really had to. Or was that an example of maybe what Georgia hasn't replicated enough during the year to really be able to call on on command against the Buckeyes? And I don't think we quite know the answer to that. I mean, the one thing I do know is Georgia won the SEC championship 50-30. to It does not want to play a 50-30 to game against uh against Ohio State doesn't want to play that way it wants to obviously limit what the Buckeyes can do and I think that means you have to get after Stroud uh a little bit like they got after Hendon Hooker in order for that to be able to happen but that to me is the mystery around the Georgia defense is when it really had to be great it was as good as it's ever been but for the most part this season it just really hasn't had to have those kind of performances and so maybe they've gotten a little listless maybe they've gotten a little disinterested at times and um I, I think that's one of the curiosities going to the playoff is you know, can when these games now matter more, when you're facing offenses that are better than most of what you played in the regular season, can you call on command the kind of defense that Georgia played against the uh, Vols? And I guess that does, to a certain extent, remain to be seen. Whether it's analysts like you, whether it's fans, whether it's people inside the building, do, do you think that Tennessee game is instructive? Are people pointing to that and saying, all right, well, this is a Tennessee team with a great quarterback and multiple Really good receivers. Okay, Ohio State, good quarterback, multiple good receivers, and we saw what Georgia did to them. Are people leaning on that? I think they probably should. Now, you're also going to have smart people, and I'm sure the Georgia coaching staff would say, well, schematically, this is different and that's different. So, you know, Kirby's not going to play ball with the idea that Tennessee's like Ohio State because he'll point out all the ways from a play-calling standpoint that Ohio State's different. But, I mean, that was an offense that was just really firing all cylinders at the time. And Georgia had an excellent day defensively against Tennessee that day. I think to the shock of a lot of people, the questions going into that game were, hey, can the Georgia offense keep pace with Tennessee? But the real issue turned out to be, can Tennessee score against Georgia? We found out, no, they really can't. Uh, there was obviously some some you know weather and some rain late in the game. But the truth is, Tennessee wasn't really moving the ball all that well to begin that game either. So if you're a Georgia fan, you want to have the utmost confidence going into Ohio State. That's obviously the thing that you'll call upon is the fact that the Georgia defense really answered the one significant challenge that it faced this year. And I guess we'll all find out if that is truly a replica of what's going to happen on December 31st. But I mean, I do think that's the kind of thing that ought to give some Georgia fans some confidence. The fact that Georgia played really well in that spot when it needed to against an offense that was really legitimately very good. I mean, it certainly seems like Javon Bullard's one of the best 
slot coverage guys in the country. Chris Smith, I'd take Chris Smith on anybody's team. Man, that guy seems smart and and on point. Captain, I like you watch that guy play. It's like, give me that guy. Ringo and Lasseter, I mean, you're lining up. There's there's talent in this secondary. Can Georgia line up and cover good receivers? Right. I mean, is that is there a, a strong belief in that? Well, one of the important things to keep in mind, too, is that Keely Ringo is a likely first-round pick. He's going to be a first-round pick. But he's also been kind of the subject of some criticism here locally because, you know, didn't really have a great game in the SEC championship. Kind of got picked on a little bit in the uh, end-of-season rivalry game against Georgia Tech. Um, so Ringo is going to be in a little bit of a spotlight for some Georgia fans. But you, like you said, Bullard's had an amazing year. He's kind of the perfect embodiment of what Kirby wants in that star position. Christopher Smith's kind of a sort of a perennial All-American, you know, type guy based on where the ends-of-season stuff has been passed out. And, you know, that day against Jalen Hyatt, who's a player very similar to what a Marvin Harrison Jr. is going to be, you know, Georgia did really well when it needed to. But obviously we would – I think we would all say, the folks watching us right now too, that Ohio State's pathway towards being competitive in this game is have the big day from C.J. Stroud, get the get the Ohio State wide receivers involved. That's obviously where they're going to try to exploit Georgia, especially if the pass rush doesn't get home and you're forcing the Georgia secondary to cover more frequently – you know, to repeat myself, Georgia did answer the one time this year when they really had to be at their best from a pass coverage standpoint. But obviously that's where Ohio State's going to see its opportunity and they're going to do everything they can to to block Georgia long enough to make that matter. Last thing, Brandon, we know Jalen Carter, what those tackles are going to do. Who Are there edge guys? Who are the edge guys that would be the biggest problem for Ohio State to handle in this situation if they're going to get pressure from there? It's the one thing that about Georgia from a sort of a personnel standpoint feels the most different from last year. Nolan Smith was former nation's number one recruit, five-star guy. And he got hurt by halfway through this season and hasn't been back. So Georgia's kind of missed his presence. He's also a big-time leader, too, so you kind of miss that there. So you're playing guys like Robert Beal, who's a holdover from the class 2017, who's still here. Uh, guys like Chas Chambliss, who's you know, a recruit of some note from a couple of years ago. But it's not the kind of edge rusher talent that maybe you would expect Georgia to have. I think you know, next couple of years, Georgia's really upgrading that spot from a talent standpoint. Obviously, they're battling Ohio State for Damon Wilson and a decision that's going to come tomorrow. So the Georgia's trying to uh, to really take a step towards upgrading that edge rusher talent. But that's not quite, I would say, a Georgia level right now. But a guy like Jalen Carter, the interior pass rush, what he can do from the game record standpoint, if you're looking at the list of true kind of game wrecking players defensively, it sort of begins – ultimately with Jalen Carter, who I really do think of all the players that Georgia's had defensively the last couple of years, he actually may be the very best. You, know, you make a big note about what Georgia lost off last year's defense, but Carter was a big part of that last year. He's back right now, and he may truly be the best of them all. He's Brandon Adams. You've got to listen. You've got to get educated on this. Dog Nation Daily. It's daily. It's the right in the name. It's a great way to get to remind people. How often does that podcast come out? Every Monday through Friday. You can't do it daily unless you do it every day. Yeah, it's not Dog Nation like Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's Dog Nation Daily. Brandon, love having you on the College Football Survivor Show. We will see you in Atlanta for this game. Thanks so much for your time and have a great Christmas. Doug, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much. Don't miss the College Football Survivor Show bonus episode this week. Available only on Apple Podcasts. Michigan, the identity that they have developed the past couple years is, I think, a win the Big Ten style of thing. And then they got out into the world, and it felt like, to me, maybe there was a cap on that offense. Like, okay, this version of the Michigan offense with Cade McNamara at quarterback, now you're out in the world, now you're out in the wild. And I don't know even what the best version of that Michigan offense, I just don't think it's going to work against Georgia. J.J. McCarthy, to me, changes that equation at least some. 
How do you view the difference between Cade McNamara playoff quarterback and J.J. McCarthy playoff quarterback? I think the ceiling is just higher with J.J. McCarthy. I mean, I think he's just a flat, more talented guy, talented kid. He's got more mobility, too, and that's something we always point to, right, when we compare the two. Neither quarterback has had to throw a ton. We, we've talked about ad nauseum. Michigan wants to run the football. That's their bread and butter. That's their identity. With J.J., they can do a little bit more. They can get him out. You know, the Ohio State fans saw, you know, last month. He can get outside the pocket and extend plays and pick up those yards maybe Cade wouldn't have gotten last year. So they're just a little bit more mobile with him. Uh, and it forces defense to adjust and, 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 and prepare for it. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for exclusive College Survivor Show bonus episodes. Joined now by Mike Rodak of AL.com, who witnessed... The only loss that the Georgia Bulldogs have taken in the last two seasons, that was to the Alabama Crimson Tide in the SEC title game last year. Mike is a beat writer for AL.com for Alabama. Mike, first of all, before we talk about Georgia, how are Alabama football fans taking it right now that they have a December in which Alabama is not prepping for a playoff game? I I think they've warmed up to it a little bit. I mean, it was kind of obvious, I'd say, after they lost to LSU. That was their second loss of the season. They pretty much made their chances of making the playoff nil. So at that point, it was the sky is falling and, you know, everything's kind of falling apart. The culture's changed and there was a lot of big picture questions. And then they, they rallied. I mean, Saban got the players to kind of come together again and they beat Ole Miss barely. They beat Auburn. And then, um, you know, they'll probably beat Kansas State. I think that's that's the likely outcome. And he was able to get all of his players to play in that game and, and have no opt out. So the mood has kind of improved a little bit. You know, I think fans, you know, I don't know how many realistically thought Alabama was going to make it, but I think they thought there was at least a debate that needed to happen between Alabama and Ohio State, maybe TCU as well. Um, again, I don't think they should have made the playoff, but. I think being number five versus being number nine or 10 is kind of giving fans a little bit more of a, a sweet taste in their mouth compared to the sour taste that was was here you know, a month and a half ago. But at the same time, I'm sure we get to March, April, May, like fans are going to be thinking, man, like we didn't win a national championship last year. Like we got to get back to that. So I'm sure the the feelings of, of angst will come back eventually. But right now, I think there's just kind of a mellow, a mellow mood, especially with the news that um, Bryce Young and, and Will Anderson will play. How, how is that happening? I cannot believe that Bryce Young and Will Anderson are playing. They have to be, since we got to this point where the very best players opt out of bowl games that are not playoff games, they have to be the two best players to play, right? Who are getting ready to go to the NFL. I can't, are you stunned that they're playing? How did? How is this happening? So I was very surprised. I, I certainly, you know, I did a lot of interviews kind of leading up to their decision. And I was always saying, yeah, I'd be surprised if they play. And then it kind of came out that they would play. So, you know, I, I think the message that they're certainly trying to send, both the players in Alabama, is that this is their culture. They want to play. These are how they are as players that, uh, and especially Will Anderson, like he's definitely been known as that sort of high motor never going to stop sort of guy, team first guy, and and Bryce Young to a certain extent as well, I think has that reputation, but especially Will Anderson. So, you know, that's, and I was never questioning that with those players. I think someone had to get in their ear and say, even as much as you might want to play in this game, is that the best thing for you to do? But at the end of the day, I think that the whole idea of like, we want to be team captains, we want to be here for our team, we want to be here for Nick Saban, that won out for them. Um, Granted, I'm, I'm, there's financial um, implications there, obviously, if, if you get hurt. 
These are two guys who both have a decent chance to be the number one overall pick. And if they're not, they're probably going to go in the top three picks. Um, and if you fall in the draft, then you're losing millions of dollars. So, and even Saban said it, there's insurance policies that the school has taken out. Um, he wasn't specific as to whether it was a permanent disability insurance policy, which was something that Tua Tagovailoa had a couple of years ago when he broke his hip. Um, but that requires you to be permanently disabled and not able to play football again in order to collect. There's a different type of insurance where it's loss of value and you can fall in the draft and you lose money from you know just falling, but you're still able to collect. I don't know if they're paying for that. I, I would like to know. But I'm sure there's some sort of financial protection that they have. I know, you know, from a completely speculative standpoint, there has been talk of bowl games in general paying NIL deals or having some sort of payment to players to try to convince them, you know, to, to play in these games. Just from a, a broad college football discussion standpoint, I don't know if that happened in this case at all. But um, you know, it, it again from Nick Saban's own words, the school is doing their best to, to protect these guys financially. I was covering the game after the 2015 season when Ohio State offensive lineman Taylor Decker made the block on Jalen Smith, the Notre Dame linebacker. He's an extraordinary player. Suffers the knee injury. He falls into the second round when he would have been a top 10, 15, maybe top five pick. And he just never has the NFL career he should have had. He had a, an injury in a, quote, meaningless bowl game that affected the rest of his football future. And... From that, I don't know if that was the moment for everybody. I think it was a moment in, in this discussion. To me, anybody who opt outs, it's not really a culture discussion. It doesn't say anything about the player. It doesn't say anything about the program when you opt out. You are being smart. You are putting your family first. You've given your, your body and your brain and your heart and your soul and your blood and your sweat and your tears to this program. And now you're going on a vacation for a bull boondoggle. And I, I don't think you have a responsibility to play. But when you see these two Alabama guys play, maybe there is, maybe the Sugar Bowl's ponying up, who knows. But I will take this as some culture of like, man, I'll tell you what, I don't know what Saban's doing. But if those two guys are playing, like, good for Alabama. I don't want to – good for anybody who doesn't play, who makes that choice. But, man, like, I, I do respect these guys if they're going to go out and ball against Kansas State when people thought Alabama was going to win the national title this year. Right. Yeah. And I, just to go back to the previous point, too, I think fans, they certainly celebrate this this decision like it's, hey, look at Alabama and look at what our players want to do. But I, I'm sure if they had decided not to play, that fans would have been just as fervent in defending them and saying they've given everything that they can to this university. They don't have to play. I'm sure there would have been a, a widespread defense, not only from Saban, but from fans as well saying that these guys, there's nothing left for them to prove. And from an NFL standpoint, there really isn't. I don't think NFL scouts, to any sort of degree, are, are looking at this or would have looked at it as a negative if either player had sat out. And I don't know if they're looking at this game and saying, you know, we need this extra data point. I mean, they know what Will Anderson is. They know what he's capable of doing. They know what Bryce Young is. Um, the biggest question about Bryce Young is going to be his size. He's less than six feet tall. That's not going to change by playing in this game. He's not going to be any bigger. Um, so yeah, that's, there's not a, a huge benefit for them personally. I, I wouldn't say in the draft, I think the benefit for them is just trying to defend their coach. And we've sensed this a lot the last month where Nick Saban's really trying to show that the Alabama culture of the last 15 years still exists to the same level because it was under attack after that LSU game, you had Greg McElroy go on his podcast on ESPN and had a 12 minute monologue where Essentially, he was saying 
this is not the Alabama I used to know. This is not the Alabama I played for. And there's other former players, too, on, on Twitter who are really questioning things. And I think Saban really got into defense mode. Um, I'm trying to make sure that this is still what he built still exists. Now, here we are. They're not playing in the playoff. They don't have a chance for a national championship. They've won one national championship out of the last five years. Before that, they won five out of nine. Like, there's still legitimate questions, I think, that need to be asked. But, again, I think this is sort of something they can hold up and say, look at Bryce Young wanting to play. Look at Will Anderson wanting to play. Look at all of our other draft-eligible guys wanting to play. And they can hold up potentially this win over Kansas State as some sort of sign that everything is still as it was. Now you're now you're in trouble here because you're saying too many interesting things. And I was like, I oh, will do a quick little hit with Mike and we'll talk about Georgia. Now I kind of want to dive into the preeminent program in college football and the state of it right now. When Greg McElroy said that, did he begin by saying, back in my day in Alabama, we never would have. Was it kind of that kind of thing? There was some element of that. It was, you know, we used to have these practices that, you know, we hated the practices. We hated every day of our lives when we were there, but we loved winning was essentially his message. And um, a lot of the talk about how the transfer portal has brought in guys that didn't really come up in that program. And it's more about the NFL for these guys and more about the NIL money. And, um, you know, it, there definitely was like old man with a stick sort of mentality to it. But I, I think Greg did make some good points. And it was something that I think probably got under Nick Saban's skin because I asked Saban about it and he was defensive about, you know, we only lost these two games by a total of four points. And, you know, we're not the sky's not falling, essentially. But at the same time, there was another Nick Saban comment where he said, you know, we're, we're listening to these guys concerns. Um, we're trying to get it back to where it was. I think Bo Scarborough, the former running back, came into the facility and was um you know, basically talking about a lot of the same stuff as McElroy and putting his hand down on the table and saying we need to get back to where we were. So it's it's a push and pull that's going on. And yeah, I think there's there's players who are around in 2010, 2011, you know, 2015, some of those real dominant Alabama teams from 10 years ago that look at this and it just doesn't look the same on the field. Um, and I think maybe they're extrapolating that behind the scenes, it's not the same either. I think Saban's point is that behind the scenes, everything's fine. It's just they're not able to get it done on the field quite to the same level that they were. So Shahan and I did this a couple weeks ago, so, talking about some of the changing of the guard in college football, potentially. I think you look at Ohio State and what Michigan has done the last two years, and you say, hmm, I wonder what the Big Ten is going to be like. You look at Oklahoma dominating the Big 12. Now they're leaving the Big 12, but also they're leaving the Big 12. It's a completely different program. And you see teams like Baylor and TCU, and you think, hmm, if USC is going to rise back up again and fill a void that the Pac-12 has had, they haven't had a dominant team uh, for the last for the playoff era, basically. You look at the ACC, Clemson is dominated. Uh, they lose the coordinators. Quarterback's not quite as good. Is Florida State, in the way they finish that season, are they going to rise back up again? But really, the conversation was the SEC, and as Alabama passed the torch to Georgia. And I don't even know that necessarily Alabama passed it. Maybe Georgia grabbed it and stole it. But also... Alabama's the only team to beat Georgia in the past two seasons. So what do we mean? They split last year. It just so happens Georgia won the game where you get the bigger trophy. And then they didn't play this year. Does that feel like, does, do, do people at Bama, fans, maybe inside the program, I've said maybe maybe Bama s slipped 10% and Georgia is as, what Kirby learned it from Nick, he's recruiting like a mamma jamma and they have great players. 
Does it feel like Georgia is now the preeminent program in the SEC? Or if I asked Nick Saban that question, would he come out from behind the lectern and grab me by the lapels and shake me? Because that's an insane question to ask of the greatest college football coach of all time who has built a dynasty in this era. No, I think he would probably agree if you got him in an honest moment. And I think there was even, I want to say it was Andy Staples who wrote it. There's a story about Saban telling people years ago that the biggest program he was concerned about was Georgia in terms of overtaking Alabama because of the recruiting uh, hotbed that really is in Atlanta, just that program in general and the um, resources and capabilities that it has. And that's obviously, you know, kind of bared itself out here. And yeah, I, I think there's definitely a sense among fans that Georgia's kind of what Alabama was. Um, and you're right. I, I think it's some aspect of Alabama slipping. I don't think it's a huge slippage from Alabama, but it is the other side rising up too, where Georgia has gotten better and, other schools have gotten better as well, and there's more teams at the top than just Alabama. So it's something they've, they've got to fix and they've got to figure out. And it's not as if, like, it, for the longest time in college football, we were like, all right, quarterbacks, like, you get a quarterback, you win. Like, that's that's the key. Well, Alabama's had the better quarterback the last two years. I think we can all agree Bryce Young is a more talented and skilled quarterback than Stetson Bennett. And here we are. Like, Georgia's still the better team. Um, so, you know, defense is still the issue. And I think it really kind of grates Alabama fans gears that Georgia has the better defense, that Kirby Smart has turned that defense into what Alabama's defense used to be. And Alabama's defense isn't bad. I mean, Alabama fans want Pete Golding, their coordinator fired, but they still have the second best defense in the SEC, but it's not the best. And that's, I think, the key difference. And um, yeah, I think in order to get back for Alabama, you got to continue to recruit well at quarterback and other positions, which they have. They'll probably have the number one signing class once it comes out tomorrow. And you still got to get that defense where you compete with what Georgia's done the last few years. And it's not it's not the easiest thing. And there's a lot of Alabama fans that said, like, because I remember going through the 12-team playoff, and here's where Alabama would have been in the 12-team playoff. And fans were like, well, we don't want to see that because that would have meant they would have played Georgia. And that meant we probably would have gotten embarrassed by Georgia. So fans were almost afraid, I think, of, of the aspect of having to play Georgia this year, even though it didn't happen. And I think a lot of people assume that they would have lost if they did play. I think that's what Greg McElroy means. Greg McElroy looked, looks at Jalen Hurts and Tua Tonga-Vailoa and Mac Jones and Bryce Young and all these NFL quarterbacks. And he's like, why does Bama have all these NFL quarterbacks? Where's our Stetson Bennett? I was Stetson Bennett. I was the first Stetson Bennett. Get one of those. Oh, these NFL quarterbacks. What a what a burden it's been for the Bama alum to have to deal. Oh, these NFL quarterbacks. So so the NIL thing, we'll do last thing. Your fault. Your fault. If you just were on here and like were boring, then you'd be out of here already and on to your life. All right. NIL from, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of Ohio State stuff with NIL and a lot of Ohio State fans, I think, inside the program, too. They're worried. They're frustrated. They're worried. And the issue to me is that NIL is a disruptor. And so the people on top don't want to be disrupted. So it's like, hey, maybe NIL is good for college football because it gives other schools who aren't winning as much, who don't have the same NFL pipeline, who don't have the same facilities right now, there's another way that you can try to catch up to those teams. And so there's a lot of teeth gnashing and angst at Ohio State. And it's like, well, it's because it's because you want to keep being good. And maybe at NIL, Ohio State isn't going to be the best. What is the view at Bama 
Are people frustrated, worried? Does Bama think, no, we're fine. We can be the best at NIL? Or do they look at Tennessee or Texas A&M or some other schools that seem very aggressive in NIL? And do they feel like this is a disruption that they don't like? Yeah, I think I think all those words, frustrated, worried, I think would apply to Alabama's stance. I think we've heard it from Nick Saban himself and sort of that infamous Texas A&M uh, rant, if you will, that night. So, yeah, I mean, for Alabama and for Saban, too, like his recruiting pitch has always been about getting you ready for the NFL. Like, here's what we can do for you personally, professionally, academically. Like, it's I can almost rail it off my own head just listening to it so many times from him. Um, and this certainly disrupts that because players aren't necessarily thinking about all those things. Um, they're thinking about where can I get paid the best or the most. So that definitely is a disrupting factor to what he's tried to do recruiting wise. Now they'll still have the number one class in, in 2023. Like they've, they've been able to work around it. I sense that they're probably more comfortable with the NIL situation now than they were maybe a year ago. Um, and just, and figuring out what players want and, and how to talk to them and how to recruit them. I think they've, they've gotten a better feel of it. It feels like, um, but you also have to keep players too. And that's kind of the the second problem where you can have the number one class bring in 25 plus guys. But if 15 of them are left after a year and 10 of them are left after two years, then what does it mean? And that's, that's kind of the second issue where, um, you have guys who just don't play right away at Alabama, which is it's hard for freshmen to get on the field here, and then they transfer. And we've seen that the last two years. There's five-star kids, four-star kids who have left. Um, a lot of them haven't played, and so fans, I think, are kind of like, oh, good riddance. Like, that guy's gone. He wasn't very good. But it does, and Saban's talked about this too, it does cut into the depth of your middle of your roster where all of a sudden one guy goes down, your starter goes down and you're having to play a freshman who's never been on the field before. And you're, you're kind of losing that middle class. So, um, you know, how much NIL has played into some of those transfer decisions, I'm sure to some point it, it has, I mean, there's two guys have gone to Oregon. I think Oregon in my mind is one of those schools that has some deep pockets, uh, obviously with the Phil Knight connection and all that. So, you know, logically I think there's, there's probably some connection to NIL there, but I think Saban has almost resigned himself to it at this point. Like even the last time we talked to him, just talking about the transfer portal, he's like, yeah, it is what it is. We'll coach who we coach. We'll see who's here and just we'll move on with our lives essentially. And I sense less frustration now from him than just like submission and just I'll do what I can with what I have and, and see where it goes. Only two things can beat Nick Saban. Well coached Georgia and NIL. That was it. Those are his kryptonites. Uh, and he knew he knew one was coming. He probably didn't realize the other one was coming. I do think part of it, too, the resignation, I think, for some people, Ohio State, I think, is still the frustration phase. They have not yet reached resignation and submission is this is not the long term answer. And I think they know that this is not what it's going to be like 10 years from now. I don't think it's what it's going to be like five years from now. And depending what happens with the latest things happening in courts and whether we're going to wind up in a place where they're going to make players be paid directly. It might not be where we are two years from now. So I think they have to weather this storm. And when the storm's here, when the storm, you just kind of kind of strap yourself to the boat and rock along with it and hope you come out the other side, because I do think you realize there's something else out there. But I mean, the storm's already here. What are you going to do? Okay. I think Bryce Young's a good quarterback. Yes. Yeah, I'd say so. Pretty good. I'd take him. I'd take him in the NFL. I'd figure out the height thing. I think he is the most poised little guy. 
that I've ever seen, which I think changes the entire sort of like small quarterback discussion because he's just it. He doesn't seem to care that he's short. So then why should I care? Because he's just like, I'm just going to be back here in the pocket. If there's pressure, I'll slide, I'll move, I'll rip a throw. And it's like, oh, you're good with it. I'm good with it. And when I watched again in preparation for this semifinal between Ohio State and Georgia, rewatching again the SEC championship game, Mike, I've watched games this year. You watch Hendon Hooker against Georgia. You watch Anthony Richardson against Georgia. You watch Bo Nix against Georgia. And I see some athletic quarterbacks who are trying to hold the ball and make plays and scramble. And then I watched Bryce Young in the SEC championship game, and he diagnosed and ripped it. He didn't hold the ball. He ran three times effectively, but he didn't run. He just saw things, read the defense, found his good receivers and ripped throws. And I think against this Georgia defense, if you try to hold it and run and scramble and think that your athleticism is going to get you out of trouble, you're going to find out no matter how athletic you are, Georgia's defense, those 11 guys are more athletic than you. So I feel like this is a, this is a defense you have to beat with your brain and your poise and, and ripping throws and watching Bryce Young to me, a year ago in the SEC title game was a master class. And to me, that's what Ohio, if I was CJ Stroud, I'd want their friends. They know each other. Bryce showed the way there. I don't think there's a ton of quarterbacks who can do it. But when you remember that SEC title game and the way Bryce Young played and the Alabama offense played in that game, what did you think of how they attacked that great Georgia defense? Well, there was a lot of questions from Alabama standpoint going to that game about their offensive line. If you might remember, because the iron bowl a week earlier, last year's iron bowl, gave up seven or eight sacks to Auburn. It was a ton. I mean, it was just a dominating performance against that Alabama offensive line by Auburn. And then you look at Georgia and you're like, oh, man, this is a front seven that I think, what, sent five guys in the first three rounds last year. Um, I mean, it was just a dominating front seven. So everybody's logically thinking, well, the offensive line is going to have a, a huge issue against them. And I think that's probably where some of that get the ball out quickly came from. And I think there's also you could sense the confidence from Alabama in throwing against that secondary of Georgia. You know, the front seven was fearsome, but I think they really liked their matchups, wide receivers versus corners, wide receivers versus safeties and just get the ball to them. And that's what happened. I mean, they threw to Mechie early in the game and he got hurt towards ACL in the first half of that SEC championship game. So then they're down to Jamison Williams, but still just kept throwing to him that play early in the second half. Just there was two guys on Williams. He just blew right past them and um, was able to, to score that long touchdown. And that was basically the game. Um, and then, you know, things kind of flipped in the national championship game. Once Jameson Williams got hurt and that was on a 40 something yard catch again, kind of burning that secondary. And then once he went down at that point, they were down both Mechie and Williams and, they didn't have another receiver that they felt could match up the same way against Georgia's secondary. And that's when they really got into that turtled up offense where they're thrown to the tight end, thrown to Slade Bolden or slot guy. And that's when Georgia, I think, really started to tee off. So, yeah, if you have the receivers, which I think Ohio State does to, to kind of beat that secondary, that's not Georgia's strength. Um, it wasn't last year. I don't think it is this year either. Then um, you have the quarterback to do it. Then that's that's probably the way to go. Um, you know, in Alabama's case too, it's just like, I don't think they ever got that this year either. And that's part of the reason why I think fans were so worried about if they did have to play Georgia, if they somehow made the SEC championship game, they didn't have the wide receivers to beat Georgia this year. And that's, that's kind of what you need. Yeah. It always felt like you, you can't go through Georgia's defense. You've got to go over it. 
And it felt like, and everybody, and now we're like going back to last year. And I was like, why are you talking about last year? It's like, it's the last time they lost. I don't know what else you're supposed to talk about. How do you deal with these guys? But the idea of Mechie and Williams, those two together, that was enough. Just Williams on his own in the second half of the SEC title game was still barely enough. And then once you didn't have him when he got hurt in the title game, then it wasn't enough. So Ohio State, you replicate that. Marvin Harrison Jr. is their first guy. He's a different receiver than Jamison Williams. Jamison Williams is pure speed. Marvin's not that. But he's still a number one receiver that you figure he can get open against anybody. And then if Emeka Buka can be that second guy like John Mechie, who maybe isn't a pure number one, but is a really good number two, and you can attack that way, I just think they have to throw a lot. But I just think Bryce's poise. And again, let's have the same conversation the whole world's had about Bryce Young for the past two years, but I can't stop talking about it. I do think CJ Stroud, his processing and standing in there and knowing what's going to come, you've got to beat, I think, Georgia pre-snap. You've got to understand where you want to go. But Bryce is just, it's pre-natural. I can't, he's the most poised college quarterback I think I've ever seen. And I think in the midst of a, of a defense that's going to get after you like that, that's so vital. And I think CJ Stroud has that ability but to me, Bryce Young is the exact, and maybe CJ too, that's the kind of quarterback you want to drop right into the midst of that Georgia defense because they're going to come after you and you've got to be able to keep your head while they do it. And Bryce Young does that better than anybody. They called him the gingerbread man is what Georgia called him because they, they couldn't catch him. Like, you can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. And I think Kirby Smart's called him a, a point guard too, where he just kind of sits back and is able to kind of watch things unfold in front of him. And then a guy runs up to him and then he makes a quick move and, and throws the ball. And there's even that play in the SEC championship where Bryce ran and then pitched it off to Brian Robinson and they're able to get some more yardage on that. Just great vision. Um, and and so, yeah, I mean, that, that certainly helped. And it was a Georgia defense too. Like if you listen to them, they were under the weather that week and um, conditioning wise, maybe weren't where they thought they were going to be. And, you know, maybe that played a role for them as well. They certainly seem better or, or better conditioned, I guess, in the um, the national championship game. But um, yeah, I mean, that's that's what beat uh, Georgia for Alabama. Like that was it was their offense. I mean, their defense was good. I mean, they fell behind in that game. Some people forget that too. Like they were they're down ten nothing to Georgia early in that game. They're having some issues with Brock Bowers. They're having issues with Darnell Washington, who's just a huge human being. Um, and then they were able to kind of figure it out in the second half. Stetson Bennett threw that pick six, which really helped, and that was a disguise coverage by Alabama where Jordan Battle, their safety, was showing one thing, and he dropped into something else and was right in the, the throwing lane for Bennett. So you got to confuse him somehow. Uh, obviously, a guy's been around for a while, and they, they were able to do that in one play at least. But, um, you know, I, I do think there's maybe an overstatement when people say, if you make Georgia play from behind, like they're not the same team, they're not able to win. Well, Alabama was winning in the fourth quarter of that national championship game. Again, some, some I think sometimes people forget that. Like they think it was just Georgia running all over them all game. It wasn't. And Georgia scored, I think, what, three touchdowns in the last 10 minutes? And and some of those were longer throws from Bennett uh, to A.D. Mitchell. There was a touchdown by Brock Bowers. Like that Georgia offense was able to throw the ball and push the ball down the field and and win the game late when they were trailing. So I don't know if it's totally a, a case of an offense that needs to be playing from ahead and, and control the ball with the run and you have a game manager quarterback. It's it's still a capable offense when they're behind on the scoreboard. Last thing, Bryce Young, two great years for Alabama. No national title, but tremendous college football player. 
what is it going to be like next year without Bryce Young? We saw, you know, we got to see Jalen Milrow this year. He looks like Usain Bolt to me when he runs, but I don't know that any, I mean, anybody you're going to have a drop off in terms of, uh, in terms of pocket presence and all the things we just said Bryce is so good at. How, how good do you think Jalen Milrow can be next year and how much will, and there's going to be some portal stuff that happens. We know Alabama has been successful doing that. How much are they going to be leaning on a young quarterback like that next year? Or are they going to have to build up around him and make sure they don't put too much on him? So, I mean, there's still an open question on who exactly will be their quarterback. And, mm. um, you know, at this point, I don't know what will happen in the portal. I think Drake May would have been their their target if he did go into the portal from North Carolina. He was a guy who had committed originally to Alabama before he flipped to um, to North Carolina. So I mean, he's probably the best returning, one of the two or three best returning quarterbacks in college football. So if they were able to get him, uh, that would have been something I think they probably would have been interested in. But I don't know at this point how many quarterbacks are out there that they'll seriously consider to be a starter at Alabama and to win an SEC championship. Like I just don't think there's that sort of guy out there. Um, so you have the two guys that are returning. Milrow is one of them. He's the older of the two. He's been here two years. But he's very limited as a passer. And we saw that the A&M game when Bryce was hurt, threw for 100-something yards, had a couple picks, um, came into a game later in the season, had another pick. Like I think there's a lot of questions internally about can they win with him throwing the ball, trying to win with that offense that they played with for five years now at Alabama, uh, very quarterback, receiver heavy. Because if you have Miller, you're going back to sort of the Jalen Hurts, Blake Sims sort of approach where you're running the ball 15 times a game with your quarterback and sort of a lot of that option run game. And you can make some plays here and there, as we saw from Miller, but I don't know if that's what they want to do for a full season. So the other option is Ty Simpson, who's the freshman this year, five-star kid out of Tennessee. His dad's the UT Martin coach. Uh, mobile as well, but probably a better thrower. We haven't seen him almost at all this year. You know, a couple of late game situations, he's handing the ball off, taking a knee. So we would have thought if Bryce had opted out of this bowl game that maybe we would have seen the most Ty Simpson we would have seen all year. And that would have been an indication of what they had in him. Doesn't look like we'll see that now. So he's still a bit of an unknown, but I think going into the spring, it will be Milro versus Ty Simpson. And then they also have two freshman quarterbacks coming in as well. Um, they didn't get Arch Manning, but they got one of the other better quarterbacks in the class and Eli Holstein. So a lot of young guys, a lot of talented guys. Obviously, it's Alabama, but I think they're just going to have to sort through and figure out, hey, do they want to run that more limited option attack with Milrow or do they want to put in a younger, more of an arm, arm talent at quarterback and, and see if they can win? Because remember, Bryce started when he was a five star sophomore. He had he had one year behind Mac Jones, but they kind of threw him in there. Hasn't started the game yet. And did pretty well his, his first year as a starter. So it, it is possible to start a young guy and still win. But in a world where Bama has gone to the portal for starting running backs, for starting receivers, for starting tackles, you could see him dipping in for a starting quarterback if the right guy was there. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think they're, I don't, it's hard to eliminate any position really from Alabama in the portal. Um, you know, and they've, I think I've only hosted one guy so far, a tight end, but I, I think they're still going to use it as a tool. Um, because that's you're losing so many guys too. If you're losing twelve guys already that they have through the portal, just by sheer numbers standpoint, you got to bring in some guys. And um, we'll have to see exactly what, which positions, but pretty much right down the list, I think they could use anybody at, at any position. He's Mike Rodak. Go read al.com. You will not find better Alabama coverage anywhere. That's Alabama football, Alabama basketball. Good right now. Alabama gymnastics usually good, right? You guys cover everything down there. 
Alabama softball, yeah. Alabama softball, if you care about Alabama as one of the preeminent, obviously, football programs, but also athletic departments in the country, go check out AL.com. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here on the College Football Survivor Show. You got it. Thanks. Thank you. All right. After this, we'll come back, talk some Ohio State next after this. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right. Back for the Ohio State portion of this preview podcast. Let's talk about the health of Ohio State. Jackson Smith and Jig was not going to play. He's out. Travion Henderson's not going to play. He's out. This is a receiver who had more than 1,600 receiving yards last season for Ohio State, set the Big Ten single-season record for most receiving yards in a season, I think at 43 receiving yards this year. Travion Henderson, over 1,200 rushing yards last year, fewer than 500 this year because he was dealing with a foot injury for much of the season and was in and out of the lineup. And when he was in the lineup, he often wasn't at his best, couldn't put his foot in the ground and make a cut. So you think about that, that's some context, but that Ohio State didn't have Jackson Smith and Jigba all year, who going into the year, I I picked him to finish second in the Heisman. I was having discussions about whether he could have a 2,000-yard receiving season, and he didn't play. And then Trevion Henderson was clearly their lead back as a true freshman last year. Then you think, okay, it's a five-star recruit. What's he going to be like in year two? So they've been dealing with that all year. They're out now. There's no doubt about it. They've adjusted to the receiver situation. Ryan Day did say, like, there's some, okay, there's some certainty of not having him. We know we're prepping without Jackson Smith and Jigba. And they had a lot of stuff planned for that guy. So it's no different, really. But there was, I think, a part of them that was sort of hanging on through the course of the year. Like, maybe he'll come back. Maybe he'll come back. That's out. And then Trevion Henderson is out. But Mayan Williams, who was their second back and emerged, was a good back this year. Physical runner. Would have been a good compliment to Trevion Henderson in a one-two punch, like George does with his backs. Um, wound up being the lead back at times. They both had 100 rushing yards against Wisconsin, and then since then, they both dealt with injuries. Mayan Williams tried to go in the Michigan game, but you could see he wasn't himself, and it, it mattered. He had some moments where you maybe thought, okay, like a healthy Mayan Williams might be able to pop that play, and, and it didn't pop. The expectation is he'll be healthier. I mean, this is what bull prep does. I, I think a healthy Mayan Williams, the healthiest maybe he's been in two months, could really matter to them. Because they, I think Ohio State's running game has been at its best when they've had either healthy Trevion Henderson or healthy Mayan Williams and been able to practice that way and then play that way. Very, very best when you had healthy both. But there were games this year where they didn't really have fully healthy either, or they weren't sure if they'd have fully healthy either. So Mayan Williams looking like he's going to be healthy, and then you presume that either Trip Trainum, who was a running back at Arizona State last year, transferred to Ohio State this year to play linebacker, has wound up being a running back, started at running back against Michigan, was like the first running back work he got all year, starts against Michigan. Either he or true freshman Dallin Hayden would be the compliment to Mayan Williams. But I do think Mayan Williams' health matters. Matt Jones, the right guard, missed the Michigan game. I thought that mattered at times, but he was sort of a game-time decision. And that game, he should be, feels like he might be okay for this game. Right guard, is it? it's not one of the most important positions, but there were moments when he was out late in the year when you noticed it. So they could really use... Matt Jones in this one. And for the most part, Mike Halls are a good defensive tackle for Ohio State who couldn't kind of their best pass rushing defensive tackle in a world where Georgia's defensive tackles are going to blow up the pocket. At least some of the time, they always do. The best guy you can do that for Ohio State, they have some run stoppers at defensive tackle, but Mike Hall is the best guy to do that. And he might be healthier than he's been. He'd been playing like, he played 30 snaps a game in some early games this season. And then later in the year, he's playing more like 12 or 15 because they're trying to manage him. 
and he wants to play more, but they're trying to manage his health and he's, his shoulders are, are not working. So he had two shoulder injuries. So if he can play more, that could matter because he can, he's not Jalen Carter because nobody is, but he's best Ohio state's best version of that. So that could potentially matter for Ohio state. Most teams, you get healthier in bowl season from an intangible standpoint. I do think it's rare when Ohio state gets to be an underdog. They like it. They claim to be underdogs when they're not. Now they actually are talking to players about that. Some players blow it off. Some players really embrace it. But I think the idea of they thought they were done and now they're back. That is like a new lease on life. And I do think it's possible, you know, talking to players. How does that make you play better football? Hey, you thought your season, you thought your shot at the national title was gone. Then USC beats Utah beats USC and now it's back. You know, they talk about chip on the shoulder. There's a lot of that stuff that's cliches, but I do think they... They feel that. They feel, you know, disrespect. I don't know. Everybody thought they were good all year. Everybody picked them to beat Michigan and they didn't beat Michigan. Like there's some of it's imagined. Imagined underdogness, I think, only goes so far. Real underdogness, I think, can matter. And we've seen Ohio State 2002. They're an underdog to Miami. They win the national title. 2014, they're an underdog to Alabama. They beat Alabama in the semi. They win. And then they're an underdog to Oregon in the national title game. They win. So I always talk about when you're an overdog who gets to be an underdog, they don't get to do that much. Neither does Georgia. Neither does Alabama. And there are times when when you can really lean into that. So I do think that matters. And I do think not playing their rival could bring out a better version of Ohio State than we saw against Michigan. Because I do think there were some intangible things that in the end, Ohio State maybe didn't handle great against Michigan. And now you're just, Michigan's a really good team that also was your rival that had your an edge on you. Now, Georgia's just a really good team. Just. There's no just about Georgia. Let's be clear about that. There's no just in Georgia. It's primary. Georgia is the king. But I do think you might get a better intangible version of Ohio State in this game. So so I think the possibility of getting the best version of Ohio State is decently high. Now, is the best version of Ohio State good enough to beat Georgia? There's certainly, I mean, maybe, but certainly maybe not. But I think I would be surprised if Ohio State didn't play well. So let's go to the offensive side of the ball. The thing that I think can help them play well is I do think C.J. Stroud is the right kind of quarterback to beat Georgia because I think you got to get it out of your hand. I think you got to diagnose and get it out and get it to your receivers and get it to your playmakers. And I think Bryce Young, what he did in the SEC title game is that version of that. We talked about it with Mike. Can Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Abuka be a version of what Jamison Williams and John Mechie were in that first half when they were both healthy against Georgia in the SEC title game? I, I don't think you want to hold on to the ball and try to think you're going to escape because you can't. But C.J. Stroud doesn't play that way. C.J. Stroud just, just does not run that much. Now, I think he's poised in the pocket. I think he can move in the pocket. I don't think he moves as well as Bryce Young in the pocket. I don't know if anybody in college football moves in the pocket as well as Bryce Young while keeping his eyes downfield. But I think C.J. Stroud's a version of that. I think he can do a version of that. So I think that offense and then don't run it. To me, it's been this situation on your earth, Ohio State, of like, why are you trying to run it? And it's not that Ohio State shouldn't try to run. It's that this version of Ohio State with running back injuries, without an Ezekiel Elliott, without a Beanie Wells, without a Carlos Hyde, without a Maurice Claret, without the backs they've had when they've been at their best, a, a big physical 22 carry a game workhorse back. If you don't have that, then why are you trying to do it? It's not what you do best. So I think Ohio State trying to throw it 75% of the time, 70% of the time in this game, I think is the right way to go. Make the make the pass game your run game. And I think I think that could work for them. I do think that could work. Now, where do you have concerns? You have concerns up front. 
against everybody has concerns up front against Georgia. The interior offensive line, it's a left guard, Donovan Jackson, who's a second year player, five star recruit, big time dude. Luke Whippler at center, second year starter at center. Really smart, really good connection with C.J. Stroud. I think setting protections, diagnosing things. Georgia's going to throw some stuff at him. We know that. Georgia lines up. Hey, there's no nobody over the nose. Now here comes a linebacker. They're going to bring a late rusher a lot of the time with the three-man front. And, you know, Georgia's really good at getting the effective five-man pressure without bringing five. They're going to have to figure this stuff out. I think Whipler and C.J. Stroud are are pretty good at that. I think they're pretty smart about that. But it doesn't mean it's easy. It's not easy. And then and Whipler's not the biggest guy in the world. So he's not going to get overwhelmed, but you know, he's going to be nose to nose with some nose guards and defensive tackles for Georgia that are going to have a big size advantage on him, which is not on un- anything unusual for the Georgia guys at least. And then Matt Jones at right guard, he's a he's a a, a good story. He's in his fifth year, he won a final, won a starting job. He'd been in, in starting competitions in two previous preseasons and did not win them. Good, solid veteran guy, but and was a top 100 national recruit once upon a time, too. So if he can't go, they, they, it dips there a little bit. It dips. Matt Jones has been pretty solid, but, you know, they, they have two All-American quality tackles. Paris Johnson at left tackle is a first-team All-American. Dewan Jones at right tackle, I think, has made at least one first-team All-American team and some other second-team All-American teams. They're both NFL guys. The, the interior guys, I think Donovan Jackson and Luke Whippler will be NFL guys. Are they NFL guys like right this second? I don't think so. So if the Georgia defensive tackles just destroy everything in their path in a way that C.J. Stroud can never get comfortable, can never set his feet, even when he's getting rid of the ball quickly, it doesn't matter because there's an offensive lineman in his lap who was thrown backwards by a Georgia guy. I mean, that's an issue. And then I do think, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot on Ryan Day as a play caller. If they try too hard to run, I just think it's going to be really difficult to get any kind of consistent run game going against Georgia. I almost think Ohio State's advantage is knowing they're not a great run team. So maybe they won't waste too much time trying. If they're coming out and trying to run on first and second down in the first half and getting stonewalled, that's like Georgia's dream. Right. So I don't know. You know, there's enough times where all of us break down these games and then the game starts and it's the opposite. You know, Michigan did that to Ohio State. You go opposite on purpose. Oh, you won't expect this. So you do this. It's not what we do best. So that's I I would be surprised if that's the calculus for this one. But I do think Mayan Williams healthy can at least give them an option. Just don't use it too much. But I do think that's the concern is that the, the Georgia defensive line just like stops the offense before it can get started. And then, and then where are you? But Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Buka are legit dudes. And this is Jackson Smith and Jigba. This would have been a heck of a game for Jackson Smith and Jigba to be healthy. This is the game that I think a lot of people were curious about a year ago. If you could have seen Jackson Smith and Jigba, Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson with CJ Stroud against this Georgia defense, that would have been really interesting because you saw what Bama did. Bryce Young, Jamison Williams, John Metchie, you saw Ohio State had three guys like that. Because Wilson and Olave were first-round picks, and Jackson Smith and Jig was going to be a first-round pick. You had three guys like that. What would that have looked like? So Ohio State is still in range of that, for sure. And But the, I think the receivers, the passing game, is going to have to have to win this game. And I do think Ryan Day has talked about the idea of most games in the playoff is in the winning teams in the 40s. I think that's the threshold. I think, I think Ohio State thinking about 42. I'd, I'd get to 42 if I were Ohio State and then look back and see where George is. I don't think you want to try to win this game 28-24. So 
On the defensive side of the ball for Ohio State, their issue all year has sort of been the secondary and who could make them pay. So you think about the concerns with the Ohio State defense is like, well, what if they play Tennessee? What if they play Caleb Williams and Jordan Addison and USC? And then they played Michigan and Michigan didn't do that all season. And then Michigan threw the ball in Ohio State and it was Ohio State mistakes. Now, it wasn't Ohio State corners just getting smoked. It was blown coverages and missed tackles. So I guess the missed tackle is getting smoked, but it's not all like, hey, we can't run with receivers. We can't fight for the ball in the air. They've had times at this year where they've had trouble, I think, on 50-50 balls, but I think they've gotten better at that. So I don't, it's mistakes. It's mistakes in the secondary. So that idea, they've, they've, they can get risky and then they can miss tackles. And so they're going to have to figure that out. A healthy A.D. Mitchell, I think is a is a major X factor for Georgia. Is it a guy that who hasn't been there most of the year who is healthy again and increases your chances of of making some of those shots down the field? Um, I do think Ohio State is a little more built to defend running backs and tight ends in the pass game. Statistically, they've been pretty decent at that. I thought they did a good job on Michael Mayer, the Notre Dame tight end in the first game of the season. Yes, Georgia has two guys. Uh, Darnell Washington's really good. They don't use him obviously as much as they use Brock Bowers, but I don't think it's it's one guy. It's they don't have. I mean, it's like, hey, who's this six foot seven, two hundred and eighty pound Ohio State linebacker or safety who can handle Darnell Washington? It's like, what are you talking about? What is like the, the nobody like that exists? All right, well, what are you gonna do? Well, I think you can play some zone looks and play a linebacker and a safety and help and bracket guys. And I think they'll do that with both the tight ends. And I think that's what they did against Mayer. Bowers is the priority. I just think I don't think you can let the tight ends go and make sure you don't get beat by the receivers. I think you've got to you've got to cover the tight ends first. And I, th- I think they're more equipped to do that. I don't think Ohio State could cover Ohio State. I don't think Ohio State's secondary could cover Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Buka. I don't know if they can cover Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington and A.D. Mitchell and Lad McConkie, and we know Lad McConkie's dealing with some injury stuff. I don't know if they can, but just it's just matchups. It's just matchups. It's not talking about anyone's skill is that much greater. It's just that where is it? So I do think um, that the, the secondary has been the concern, and then is that where George is going to attack you the most? So Ohio State has to not blow, co- you know, what are you going to do? If you blow coverages, I mean, you're dead. So don't blow coverages. They blew coverages against Michigan. And it, again, Michigan forced them. Michigan didn't just sit back and say, oh, no, thanks for the freebies. Michigan forced Ohio State into mistakes that created the freebies. So obviously they're working on that. Um, but I, I do think the greatest concern for Ohio State, just like man on man, is maybe not the thing that George is going to try to get you with. So then what can Ohio State do well? They have three five-star edge rushers. And this Georgia offensive line is great, but there's an injury at right tackle. And what if they play their best game? I don't. JT Tuimolowau and Jack Sawyer are two sophomore five-star defensive ends who were both the top among the top 10 recruits in the country. And then Zach Harrison is a four is a fourth year senior, played real snaps since his freshman year, played a ton of snaps here. Five-star recruit. So those are your three defensive ends who play. Tui Molowau and Harrison start. And then Sawyer is this wrinkle look that is a stand-up end. It's like, you know, Georgia fans know that. Georgia fan, Georgia does that a lot. Uh, Ohio State is something new that Jim Knowles, the first year, $2 million a year defensive coordinator, brought to this defense. They had been a solid four-man front for years, for decades. And there's a wrinkle to it now when Jack Sawyer's in the game. Tui Molowau and Zach Harrison play, play the most snaps at end. 
and then Sawyer mixes in. So those guys need to play their best game. So what does that look like, right, against a really good offensive line? I'm not sure because they just – they don't have a ton of sacks. That's not what they've done. This is not in a world where Ohio State was spoiled by Joey Bosa, Nick Bosa, Chase Young. They've been good. and then, But also, too, they had Sam Hubbard. They had Tyquan Lewis. They had Jalen Holmes. They've had other defensive ends, too, um, not just those three guys. And so, like, these guys are good – but in terms of like getting sacks, it's not as great. And so pressure matters. JT Tuimolowa had a great game against Penn State, knocking balls out of the air. Zach Harrison, I think, can be really good against the run. They're good. They're good. They're definitely good. Can they be great? I think the ability, like the ability to be great remains in there. They're very good football players. I don't know if very good's enough in a semifinal. I think somebody in there might have to be great. And the potential is there, but will it happen? So, you know, linebackers and safeties are solid. They're not um, from athletically, like the top, top, top end of athletes that you have seen at times at safety and linebacker for Ohio State. But Tommy Eichenberg's been a second team All-American. Jim Knowles is, as a middle linebacker has used him to shoot gaps and blitz and, and have good run fits. And when they're on, they're on. It's really good. And he can also get out and, you know, those swing passes that we know George is going to throw, Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers, the two linebackers who will play in their 4-2-5 look, they can get out and chase those guys down, make some ankle tackles in space, and they'll have to. We know that. We know that George is going to do that. They do have that ability. I've wa- I wondered coming into the year about that ability, but they do have that ability. So it is a solid Ohio State defense, much better than a year ago. This matchup for Ohio State a year ago would have been even more difficult when you think about the Ohio State defense because they had real flaws there, both in personnel and scheme. A lot of the personnel is the same from last year, but a lot of them are playing better. Tommy Eichenberg was here last year. It's like he wasn't. He's a new. He's a different guy. Teron Vincent, one of their starting one of their starting defensive tackles, fifth year guy, better player this year. Zach Harrison, as we mentioned, playing his best football this year. Lathan Ransom at safety was hurt last year, playing his best football. This year, right? There are guys who are playing their best football. So it's not a, well, it wasn't a reinvigoration of talent necessarily. Jack Sawyer and JT Tuimolowau got older and that helps, but it's kind of the same guys. It's a new look. And I think beyond the scheme, which is going to, it does try to bring blitzes from various places. It is more aggressive. It is more varied in coverages. It is going to disguise stuff more pre-snap. And then here's a different look post-snap. They didn't do that as much last year. And they felt like they really wanted, they really wanted to lean into that. And Missouri got after Stetson Bennett, right, and tried to be aggressive and blitz in that game. And it worked for a while. Then at the end of the game, Stetson Bennett won on the game. But it's in the 20s, right? It's in the 20s. So could an aggressive defensive coordinator, I thought being aggressive against Michigan wasn't great for Ohio State. I do think being aggressive in this game makes more sense. So I do think they will be that, but they can't. I mean, it's like be aggressive, but don't blow coverages. That's not too much to ask. So. Um, I do think they're more equipped to stop the run, and I but I think they sold out so much to stop the run against Michigan, they got beat over the top. So they have to be able to stop the run without leaving guys alone in the secondary. So I think it's a good matchup. I think my shorthand a little bit is maybe in the end, I was there were times this year when I thought, yeah, Georgia's better than last year. And I think in the end, probably not. And I do think mostly because of the defensive changes, Ohio State is better. I don't think Ohio State's offense is better. Because a year ago, you would have been a year ago, you would have had healthy Jackson Smith and Jigba, healthy Trevion Henderson, plus Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson for this game. So now you have none of those four. <laughs> those would have been the four guys who would have taken up 
90% of getting the ball for Ohio State a year ago, if this Georgia-Ohio State matchup would have happened in the playoff a year ago. Now you have none of those four. But Ohio State has the same quarterback, and it has Marvin Harrison Jr., Emeka Egbuka, Julian Fleming, and then Mayan Williams. Plus, they work it in the tight end more this year with Cade Stover. So those guys are very good. They're not as good as those four guys would have been a year ago, but they're very good, and the defense is better. So I think Ohio State has a chance. It's an uphill climb. George is really solid. I think at times you've looked, it's taken longer at times this year for Ohio State to be its best in some games. They did work it out against Penn State. They worked it out late against Notre Dame, but they did not come out and dominate sometimes in those games. The way I think you could see Georgia took it to Oregon or Georgia just was in control against Tennessee or the way Georgia, you know, maybe LSU gave them a little trouble and they took over that game against the best team that's taken longer for Ohio State to work it out. So guess what? You can't work it out for too long against Georgia. They're going to smother you. But does Ohio State have a chance? I think from where we were on Selection Sunday to where we are now, I think I have in my head Ohio State's chances of winning have increased the more I've looked at this game, the more I've looked at the matchups, the more I've looked at the film and talked to people. I think it's increased. What does that mean? Well, I think it's become less impossible for Ohio State. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but I think it's become less impossible. But I think to look at Georgia is to see supreme talent defensively, really well coached, and offensively, a really good offensive line, a deep running game, a veteran athletic quarterback and a very well stitched together plan. Again, you just, you got to respect George's plans on both sides in to such a huge degree. They're so, they're so athletic, but they're so well coached. They're so, I just think they're disciplined and they're smart. Again, give me Chris Smith, a hundred days out of a hundred. Give me an offensive line like that. There's just a lot, so much to respect about Georgia. Georgia's not going to give this to Ohio state. Does Ohio State potentially have the offensive electricity to go take it in a way that few teams would have that against a team as good as Georgia? I do think Ohio State has that potential, which is why I think this is going to be fun. And we're glad you guys are here to help us do this. We're going to be back next week with two more shows. We'll have shows right after the semifinals. Um, We love that you guys have been with us through this whole season, building up to the college football playoff. And if you just joined us now, welcome. Welcome. We're glad you're here. So next week, Shahan J. Haraja, my regular co-host, will be back. But for now, we want to thank Brandon Adams. Tremendous. We want to thank Mike Rodak. Tremendous. And we want to thank Colin Schmaling, who is the, the producer and editor of this podcast and just makes, uh, makes, makes it great. So thanks to him for all this work this season. Most of all, thanks to you guys for listening. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.